Our passage this morning is uh, in the Gospel of John. We're, we're finishing chapter 8 in the Gospel of John. The text before us is John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. John chapter 8, verse 48 through 59. I encourage you to follow in your text as I read. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my it is my father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him but I know him And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We're still in our account in the temple. We see this in verse 50, how he went out of the temple. So he's been in the temple doing this teaching. We're not sure if he's, I'm just not sure if he's still there in the court of the women or if he's uh, maybe in the Gentile court where he could get a larger audience, but he's there in the temple teaching God's word. The season, as you recall, is, is we've just passed through the season of Sukkot or tabernacles. And so that's why he said, you know, if any man thirsts, let him come to me, because there was this sacred pouring out of water during the Feast of Tabernacles. And when he could say, I am the light of the world, there was an incredible time of of light, of the, these huge uh, menorahs uh, being lit up in the temple, uh, in the temple court of the women, that was so bright it, it, it lit up the, the courtyards all across Jerusalem. So, so this is in the season as that's just passed by the season of tabernacles. I think it's interesting that tonight at sundown begins the feast of tabernacles or Sukkot. And so, so we're, this will give you a sense of uh, what things are like. We are, we're in the fall. Um, I don't know if the rains will have begun, but it can get uh, rainy and it can get uh, cold. And so it's, it's that sort of time. I don't know, maybe it would help us in Texas to, if you want to know when the Feast of Tabernacles is, maybe if we, every year as, as the uh, state fair rolls around, you'll think, ah, Tabernacles is in the air. <laughs> And maybe that's a good picture. For a lot of people, they go every year to the state fair. It just, uh, 
it would somehow be un-Texan or un-American or something wrong if you did. But there's this tradition. You might ask them, why do you go? And they say, well, we've got an annual budget. It's $100, and we need to go eat a lot of fried food. <laughs> so they go. <laughs> but anyway, all that to say, in the same way, we're going to the temple. Why? Because God said so. It's an incredible feast. I'm sure there was, there was feasting. There was celebration. There was worship. There was the gathering with the, all the saints of Israel. What a time. And as that's all now in that still, if you will, echoing in, in the temple and in Jerusalem, Jesus has been teaching. In chapter 8, he has slowly been kind of building up. He, he, he wisely doesn't just give them everything all at once. He slowly builds up. And remember, there was the encounter, of course, with the immoral woman. But then after that, he, uh, he, he says, I'm the light of the world in verse 12. And he speaks again, if I, they say, well, you're bearing witness of myself. And, and he deals with that again. And he'll deal with it before the end of the chapter. And he, he speaks of his, of his fact, I am the one who bears witness of myself. My father bears witness of me. Um, and they say, well, who is your father? And he says, you, you don't know my father or me. And so he's slowly building up by the end of this chapter. He has been increasingly becoming clearer and clearer as to who he is and who his father is. Well, notice they begin after, after, by saying, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Um, why did they say that he was a Samaritan? Well, for one thing, that was just, that was just a good way, a dig, a, a good way of, you know, uh, Samaritans were hated by the Jews, and the Jews were hated by the Samaritans. It was a mutual animosity agreement. And so, so when he's questioning their uh, genetics, if you will, their relationship to Abraham, really, they're saying, Abraham's our father. You, well, you're, you're a Samaritan, which was a mixed group. The Samaritans were the Israelites who intermarried with all the others that were brought in from the Assyrians into northern Israel. But also, I might have mentioned, I think I mentioned, when Jesus came down late to the tabernacles, remember his brother said, are you going to go to the feast? And he said, not yet. But then when he did, he, came, he went where people wouldn't notice him. He didn't want to draw a lot of attention to himself. Well, one, he probably did that passing through Samaria. He wouldn't have run into a lot of pilgrims because they typically avoided it. And so if he came in out of the Samaritan region, that would have been one more rumor. Who is he? Why is he among the Samaritans? But they say, you're a Samaritan, don't we rightly say? And again, that's a question that expects a positive answer. Aren't you a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Now, Jesus has been speaking some strong words. If God were your father, you would love me. You are of your father the devil. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You don't hear me because you're not of God. And so, so he's been kind of harsh with them, and so they respond by not being welcome at all, but, but back at him. They, and they attack him as a person. Uh, I've heard it's a young lawyer was talking to an older, experienced lawyer. It was S. Lewis Johnson who mentioned this, and, and the, the young lawyer said, so, so how do you handle a case? And the experienced lawyer said, well, if the, um, if the law favors your, your case, well, you, you emphasize the law. If the evidence favors your case 
emphasize the evidence. And the younger lawyer says, well, what if the evidence in the law, neither of them is on my side. He said, well, then you attack the other lawyer. That's called ad hominem. You're attacking the person. Well, that's what they're doing with Jesus. He's confronting them with truth. And so what do they say? Oh, you're just a, you're just a Samaritan. You're not even a real Jew. You're, 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 you're demon-possessed. I mean, they're, they're throwing everything they can at him. And, and again, why would they say demon-possessed? Actually, I think that's kind of a, they can't help but admit, he's been doing miracles. How do you explain this? When he goes into a village, disease evaporates. The blind see, the deaf hear. How many lepers were now all of a sudden showing up in the temple to going to the priest and saying, I've been healed of leprosy. And the, and the, and the priest is saying, we don't see this. I mean, so, so they, they couldn't get away from the fact that incredible miracles were happening all through Israel. Oh, it must be he's demonic. And in another place, they'll say, well, you cast out demons by the power of Satan. Well, we won't get into his argument on that case, but you see what, why demon-possessed? There is a supernatural power that they cannot deny. It's interesting. There's another kind of backhanded acknowledgement of the miracles of Jesus, even in some of the later rabbinic writings, where he's accused of being a sorcerer because he did miracles. Where Jesus points at the miracles and says, look, the Bible says these are what the Messiah will do, and I'm doing them. So they call him demon-possessed. They call him um, a Samaritan. They use every kind of a thing they can to attack him. And again, I've mentioned already, we see the same approach today. When we speak God's truth to our society and to our culture, especially when we address issues of, of morality and biblical justice, what's the response? Ad hominem. They attack the people. They're called a, a, a hater. They're called a racist. They're called a fascist. And so much more. You attack the person because you can't handle the truth. And so what was happening 2,000 years ago is happening today. And sometimes it surprises because it might even come from pulpits. Well, these were religious leaders, the rabbis of his day, using the same strategy. Jesus, we're told in verse 49, answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. He, just, he doesn't even talk about the Samaritan attack. But, I, but he just says, I don't have a demon. And again, it's like saying, I don't have any sin. In a sense, prove it. What about him, aside from his power, fits with a demon? He is the essence of moral purity. And frankly, that in itself is probably a bother to them. He is so holy and godly. He, remember, he can even tell them... Let him who is without sin. Well, if you see sin in me, bring it up. And sometimes, when we're really walking a life that honors the Lord, it makes people uncomfortable. Now, I have a little advantage. You know, some people would call me reverend. That's one of the first clues. It's not someone from our church. <laughs> reverend this or reverend that. Whenever someone, I get on the phone, reverend, uh, yes. Okay, I, I could, uh, let's see where this is going. 
But sometimes where people will start talking and use certain vocabulary, and then they recognize I'm there, and all of a sudden they start apologizing, like, what am I? But, you know, there's a, an, an image of holiness. Well, in the same way, Jesus, I, I'm sure some people felt very uncomfortable because of the purity of his life. It's been used, the illustrations that have been used. Have you ever lifted a rock or maybe lifted up a kind of a rotting uh, piece of wood and all of a sudden all the little creatures start running? They're very uncomfortable in the light. The light of holiness makes sinners uncomfortable. And so he says, I, I, I'm no demon. I'm not demon possessed. What, I do, what I'm doing is I'm honoring my father. And that's the opposite. Demons dishonor God. Demons rebel against God. I honor him. But he says, on the contrary, you are the ones who are dishonoring me. And, and who is he? He's God's Messiah. You say, I'm demon possessed. You are attacking God's Holy One. God's Messiah. I am the one who honors God and you're attacking me. So follow that through logically. Therefore, you are dishonoring God. You are the one who are dishonoring God. You're the ones who are acting demonic. And as a matter of fact, he's already said, and who's your daddy? Satan. But, but isn't that so often the case? Sometimes people who are right in the midst of a sin will be the first ones to accuse others. Liars are sometimes the first and most aggressive in, in, in accusing others of being liars. Verse 50, he continues, I, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Now, he, he's, I, Jesus is not comfortable really talking about himself in that way. He's not, he's not there to defend himself. But, but he says, there is one who seeks and judges. I don't seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks. I think he's speaking of God seeking his son's glory. Jesus didn't have to seek his own glory. The Father would take care of that. The Father would exalt and glorify him. And by the, closer to the end of this book, when we get to chapter 17, uh, Jesus will pray, Lord, glorify this, your son. And so he says, I'm not glorifying myself. I'm not honoring myself, but there is one who will. And he is the same one who will judge. So as you are attacking me, Jesus is saying, you will answer for it. You will stand before the judge who has sought my glory, he's telling them. And so that's a reminder today that those who so vociferously, so aggressively attack the biblical faith, one day they will stand before God and will answer for their rebellion and their hostility. They will give an account. And so he's trying to warn them, you'll be held accountable for this. This isn't kind of a, I'll show you. I think it's an appeal of mercy. It's an appeal of pity. Stop. Stop. You're going to stand before my father. And when he sees how you've treated me, you will answer. I'm reminded of some reports I heard of uh, POWs in, in Germany in particular. German POWs, like Americans, 
uh, as, the, um, as the war was coming very close to an end. And so it was just a matter of time before they would be overrun, their captors would be, would be the captives. There was one situation I remember hearing about where they were going to very aggressively, uh, a matter of fact, they were singling out, uh, they wanted to single out the Jews. And this uh, one man who was not Jewish, was a, you know, he was the highest ranking uh, soldier there. And so he said, uh, well, we're all Jews today. So they said, I want all, they said, we want all the Jews to step forward. And he said, well, we're all Jews. And so the, his whole, the whole, all of them, all the prisoners just stepped forward. We're the Jews. And, and the guy was threatening, well, I'm going I'm to kill you right now. And this man's response was, well, you can go ahead and do that. But let me remind you, it's just a matter of time before you are conquered and you will be brought to court for war crimes. Look at all the witnesses around you. With that, the German officer put away his gun. He knew the reality. Judgment's coming. I'm going to give an account. And that's the logic Jesus is using. You're dishonoring me. My father honors me. And you will stand before my father for dishonoring me. Well, the, the text then goes on and the, to talk about the, the issue of, of death in verses 51 to 53. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He's just spoken of seeing God as judge. Now he says, Now if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, have you ever heard me say such a thing about my words? If you keep my word, if you keep my ideas, my teaching, why, well, you'll never see death. But Jesus could say it because he is God in the flesh. And he is, can say it because he stood in the presence of his father. And he's saying, I'm conveying what I received directly in the presence of my father. He spoke with authority. But they couldn't hear it, he says, because they're not of God. So here he's making this bold claim. If you keep his word, it will keep you from death. And as I said, he, now he, you see how he's kind of building up and building up. First he's, you don't know who my father is. I know who my father is. Now he's come to the place of saying, if you keep my word, it will keep you from death. Now once again, we see our Lord's teaching, right? Uh, does it ever happen that a believer can die? So what's he talking about? Let's, let's go forward then. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. The prophets are dead. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. I mean, how bizarre can that be? Abraham died. The prophets died. In fact, I feel like Actually, there may be a little bit of gloating here. Gotcha. You, you just overplayed your game. List, believing and living according to your word, keeping your word, will protect from death? The greatest heroes of the faith have died. Everyone's died. And so you can almost see them winking at each other and smiling. Got him. Let's go in for the kill. 
And so that's what they say. Following your way, we won't die. What about Abraham? Everyone agrees he's the father of the faith. He's the model of faith. Matter of fact, that's what he keeps, you know, you know, if you were of Abraham, you'd believe me, he says. The prophets. Think of the great prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so many others. Well, the prophets have died. But you say that you will not take death. You know, that's, they're so taken by that. Now, we do have to step back and say, once again, they've kind of overplayed their hand. Remember when they said, you know, you know, no prophet has ever come from Galilee? Well, that's actually not true. And here, no prophet has ever died? Think about it. That, okay, that'd be a great little quiz. Everybody pull out a piece of paper, fold it in half, write down what prophet never died. Of course, you've already all thought ahead, right? And you're thinking, well, there's Enoch, right? Remember? Uh, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Some child in Sunday school learned that lesson, went home and told her mother, well, we learned about Enoch. Uh, the Bible says um, he walked with God and he was not. Mother said, well, what happened? Well, I think what happened is they'd walked so far from his home, God just said, well, why don't you just come home with me? But he took him. But Enoch didn't die. And they would call him a prophet. Okay, well, maybe they would say, well, he's not called a prophet. Are there any prophets that didn't die? Are you thinking about it? Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming forward to carry me home. I'm not going to sing it for you. But 2 Kings 2.11, then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So I can point to two, Enoch and Elijah, that did not die. Well, of course, they're speaking in generalities, and I get that. But generally speaking, they're, they're, they're correct, right? The natural course for man is he dies. It's appointed for man once to die, and after this comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27. That's Hebrews 9.27. But once again, what is our Lord doing? Remember? He speaks of birth, but he doesn't mean birth. He speaks of water, but he doesn't mean water. Now he's speaking of, of death, but he doesn't mean death. And, and how do you know? Because the context is, is clear. He's speaking beyond the natural. What kind of water is there where if you drink it, you're never thirsty again? He's not speaking in the physical realm. How can you be physically born again? It's not, that doesn't happen. And, and now he's speaking about how is it possible that a man won't die because of his faith? He's not speaking physically. But again, I like to say he teaches by confusion. He stirs them up. He gets them asking questions. What are you talking about? That's exactly what he, you know. Of course, there's the what are you talking about, which means I'm not listening to you. But there's the what are you talking about that says, explain that to me. And how we need to be careful when we, you can see that, that, to, that approaches even to our Bible. There are some, every time they see a, a thing that kind of troubles them in the Bible, they say, ah, see, I'm not going to take it. When really we should open that I, I don't get that let me see what let me follow these cross references let me look up in a commentary let me go to the highest source of truth I'll call Drake in the morning no don't do that <laughs> but uh, but the no, point being um, 
they're too quick to jump on what can't be instead of saying, what do you think he's saying? A death that, that, that we can't die. That really comes out in John, later on in John chapter 11. And I, I feel like, and as I keep mentioning, see later in John, I think John is trying to build up these, these themes and get us thinking about things. So later on, it's like, ah, yes, I got that. But in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, when he was uh, speaking to Martha, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now notice he's just put death in two different ways. He who believes in me, though he may die, will live. And then he goes on to say, but if he believes in me, he won't die. Well, what do you mean? Two types of death. Physical death is nearly universal. Forget Enoch. Forget Elijah. And forget the generation when the Lord takes the living into, into heaven. We call that the rapture. The, the, the catching up of the church. And it seems like every generation feels like we're closer than we've ever been. I can say that. But, but in other words, there is a generation that will not die. But aside from that, that's that old thing. There's only two things certain in life, right? Death and taxes. And, and, and death is not as certain as taxes, it would appear, because there's at least one generation that won't experience it. So what's he talking about? He's not talking about death. He's talking about death. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Over in the book of Revelation, we're told that you know, those who, who hadn't trusted in Christ, who did not trust in the Lord, they, they are a part of the second death the eternal death. And what he's saying is if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not experience spiritual death. You are alive forever. You are, you have eternal life. And so the body may fail, but the soul doesn't skip a beat. Well, they don't like what he just said. Never die. And the, and, and, the pro, and and what about the prophets? Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? What do you make yourself out to be? Just who do you think you are? Which is actually, depending how you ask that, that's a very good question. Who are you, Jesus. Now, we could ask that in a way, again, that says, I don't really care, care what you say. I'm just, I'm throwing a question, but I don't want an answer. Who are you? But then there's the question, who are you? Are you man or are you God? Yes. Are you the Messiah? Yes. Are you the promised Savior? Yes. Are you the Redeemer? Yes. Yes, yes. But they're not asking, who do you think you, who do you make yourself to be? And by the way, um, when that question in my text, it has, are you greater than our father Abraham? Again, in the Greek, 
It's, this is written in the way that assumes a negative answer. You aren't greater than our father Abraham, are you? They died. And, and believing in you means no death? Are you greater than the prophets? Again, once they, again, they, they feel like they've got it. How, how dare you? You know, if someone were to say to me, do you think you're greater than Isaiah? Are you kidding? Uh, one of the little notes I received this morning. I'm second only to, and there was a list of, I don't know, 20 or 30. Short list, frankly. <laughs> we could go on all day of saying who I'm second to or 80, 82nd to. Are you greater than, you know, Jesus could have answered this simply, right? Yes, I am greater than Abraham. Abraham was simply a man and a sinner at that. The prophets, same. Me, I'm God in the flesh without sin. I am greater. But again, you know, sometimes a direct answer is not as helpful as kind of gradually leading to the truth. Because they're not, they're not ready for that simple statement. Are you greater than them? So one of the things I've wrestled with is I, as we're going through this John, and there's this, there's, there's a big battle going on. There's a big amount of conflict. Have you ever noticed that people love to be a witness to conflict? Most of us don't like to. Now, there are some people that seem to love to get, stir up conflict. They, they love it. Personally, I'm not uncomfortable, but, but, some, but a lot of people really love to watch conflict. They will pay a ton of money to watch two guys have a conflict up in a ring. I always think back to you know, Berkeley where the street evangelist would, would get up and he'd start, he, he, had a, he had a great, art, he knew how to draw a crowd. He would go up to maybe the young, the young socialist table and he'd start asking them questions. And the next thing you know, they've got a debate going. And next thing you know, uh, voices are rising and tempers are heating up. Now, he didn't get all worked up. It was his plan all along. Next thing you know, as they're yelling at him, and well, all of a sudden, what happens when there's this yelling going back and forth? A crowd gathers. After, he, after the crowd's growing enough soon enough, he walks away, gets up on the steps, and he starts preaching. Because <laughs> he knew nothing draws a crowd like a good argument. So we could focus on that, but I think we'd be missing. Don't, don't miss. Jesus isn't here to cause an argument. But the argument shows the trouble with man's heart. We really need to pick, focus in on what Jesus is saying. Look at those words again. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Have you ever noticed even the word death is hardly ever used in polite conversation. We find all kinds of euphemisms, of ways of talking around it. He's no longer with us. He passed. He, he, he died. That's what we're trying to say. He died. But Jesus is the conqueror of death. And those who believe in him, though their body may fail, their, their soul will not miss a beat and will continue on in life. The rabbis asked, do you think you're greater than Abraham and the prophets? And his answer would have to be, 
Yes. In Matthew 12, uh, 41 to 42, in Matthew 12, 41 to 42, the, he was speaking to the, the unbelievers, the, 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 the hard-hearted unbelievers around him. And he said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Nineveh, remember, a very wicked city? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the world to her the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Those are pretty strong terms. Great, greater than the prophet that brought Nineveh to repentance. Of course, remember, he didn't want that. He got mad with God. I knew that's what you were going to do, is you were going to show mercy to these Ninevites. That's why I didn't want to come. But God used him to bring the wicked Assyrians to repentance. The nations were in awe of the wisdom of Solomon, and Jesus could honestly say, but one greater than Solomon is here. Have you ever heard the expression, goat Greatest of all time. It's kind of interesting. It seemed, I was watching the last Olympics and it seems some of the ones who were carrying around, even they even had the label on them, goat. But it wasn't their Olympics. Um, greatest of all time. There is one who could rightfully wear that, and that would be Jesus Christ. He truly is greatest of all time. Are you greater than the prophets? Yep. Than Abraham? Absolutely. He's, he's, so he goes on and says, if I honor myself in verse 54, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say he is your God. Notice he's getting clearer and clearer. Earlier in the chapter he was saying, I know who my, God, my father is. You don't. Now he's saying, you know who my father is? My father is the one you call God. What's he just said? My father is God. You call him God. I call him Abba. He's my father. I've been talking about my father who sent me. The father where it was in his presence, I learned, I received what I'm giving to you. That's who my father is. You call him God. The God they claimed, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of David. The God of Isaiah, Jeremiah, the God of the Bible is the father of Jesus. And that's important because children share in the nature of their father. If his father is God, so is he. That occurred to me one time when I was talking with some Jehovah's Witnesses on our porch. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will come and they'll, they'll say they're Christian and they'll say they believe the Bible, but they will be very clear and they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny that Jesus is God. They honor him. They say, oh, he's a wonderful, maybe an angelic being or something like that, but they say, oh, no, he is not God. And so, you know, if you spend, want to, you can spend as long a Saturday as you want going round and around. Um, but we were having a conversation and this one was somewhat older and I don't like to use that expression. She was not a very young woman. 
And I suspected she might even be married and have children. And so I, I said to her, I said, tell me, are, do you have children? She said, well, yes, I do. I said, are they human beings like you are? She said, well, of course. I said, right. Your children share your nature. And Jesus said his father is God. He shares his nature. With that, the conversation was over and she left. <laughs> Absolutely could not tolerate the idea. I prayed that maybe that would put a seed in her thoughts because it's clear Jesus again and again called him Father. And he spoke of my father in ways he didn't speak of teaching us to call him our father. It's possible to know a lot about the Bible, like those Jehovah's Witnesses. You can know a lot about religion and yet not know God. And that was true of those rabbis. Friends, they would run circles around us in their ability to quote the scripture in the original language. But they didn't know God. Chuck Swindoll uh, reminds us of a story. At the village church in Kalinovka, Russia, attendance at Sunday school picked up after the priests started handing out candy to the peasant children. No, let's write that one down. Candy. One of the most faithful was a pug-nosed, pugnacious lad who recited his scriptures with proper piety, pocketed his reward, and then fled into the fields to munch on it. The priest took a liking to the boy, persuaded him to attend church school. This was preferable to doing household chores from which his devout parents excused him. By offering other inducements, the priest managed to teach the boy the four Gospels. In fact, he won a special prize for learning all four Gospels by heart and by reciting them nonstop in church. Sixty years later, the boy still enjoyed reciting Scripture. Today his soul is who knows where. His body lies cold in the ground under a marker bearing his name, Nikita Khrushchev. He knew the Gospels better than most genuine Russian believers, yet apparently, without appropriating the truths they contain. We can know a lot about the Bible. We can know a lot of the Bible and not know the author of the Bible. And that's the difference between knowing those truths and keeping my word. He's talking about receiving and embracing a living God's truth. Jesus goes on. If I, if I say I know him, if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. You say, I can't deny God. Fact is, I know him. You don't. And, and, if I didn't, and that's a great backsided slap at them. And if I didn't know him, say, if I said I didn't know him, I'd be a liar just like you are. And so he, he is an example for us. He keeps God's word. He, he constantly tells us he's sent by the Father. He obeys the Father's will. In that doing that, he shows us his submission to the Father, and he's a model for us. He's not boasting in his claims. He said to deny it would be a lie. I've shared with you before the, the great expert in his field, uh, 
was called to be bear uh, expert testimony in court. Now, he was a very humble man, hardly ever talked about himself or his many credentials. And the uh, attorney said, would you please express to us your credentials that, a lot, that mean you should testify in court today? He said, I'm the greatest authority in the world on this topic. A friend of him heard that and was startled. I can't believe you said it. He said, what can I do? I was under oath. <laughs> and Jesus saying, I speak the truth. I can't deny my father. But notice, I, I think we should bar. He keeps saying, I do what my father told me to do. Well, that's because he is the son on a mission, but I think he's also modeling for us. We do what the Father calls us to do. In verse 56, he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. You want to talk about Abraham? He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it was glad. And they spoke, are you, are you greater than Abraham? He said, well, actually, Abraham saw my day. And he rejoiced. And what does it mean he saw the day of Jesus? I'm not going to launch into this too far. You could read all kinds of commentaries. And it kind of reminds me of what my Jewish friends, if you get... Say that if you get three Jews in a room, you'll get four opinions. Um, if you get three ministers in a room, you get four opinions. Uh, and so there's all, it's hard to be clear because he's, the emphasis isn't what he saw, you know, the, the exactness. But here's what I would say. Some people say he's looking from heaven and he sees Jesus' day. It's past tense. I think he's referring to sometime in the life of Abraham, he saw, he didn't, notice it says he didn't see Jesus, though he did when he came to the tent before Sodom. But he saw his day. I would understand it as a prophetic vision, if you will. When God showed him what his plans were. You know, he's the father of the promised people. He's the, he's the ancestor of the Messiah. It was promised through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so somehow in one of those things, maybe in Genesis 15, when, when God said, look at the stars, so will your descendants be. Maybe somewhere in those contexts, God showed him the coming of the Messiah and what Messiah would, would bring and do, whether the kingdom or his incarnational ministry. Remember, he saw both. But he saw the day of Jesus. And he rejoiced. Notice, by the way, you keep talking about Abraham. He was happy about my coming. Why aren't you like your father? But... Um, here it is, and he says, Abraham saw my day, and it brought him joy. Well, they asked, are you greater than Abraham? Abraham saw my day and was happy. They said, you're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. Notice, he didn't say he saw Abraham. He said, Abraham saw his day, but never mind. You're not even 50 years old. How old was Jesus at this point? Kind of late in the Sunday morning service, but can you do a little math with me? Scholars differ. Some would say he was crucified and buried, resurrected, A.D. 30. Some say it was A.D. 33. Both of those kind of fit with when the Passover falls related to the week and that sort of thing. 30 or 33. I tend to find myself thoroughly convinced by whichever author I'm reading at the time. But it's not a, you know, the gospel doesn't change on those two dates. I was going to say which way I'm leaning to these days, but I'm not going to say because it'll change. But anyway, 30 or 33, okay? Upper limit, we would be 33 years out. It would be in the year about 33. This is in the, this is in the uh, 
fall, and he dies in the spring. So he dies in 33. This would be late 32. When was he born? Um, when we often see he was born while Herod the Great was alive. Because Herod the Great tried to get him killed. Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So he's somewhere between he's somewhere between 35 and 40 years old. He's less than 40. So why do they say you're less than 50? Because they're you know, they're, you know some people just look young. Well, you can't be older than 50. And, and so sometimes, you know, it's, it's, they're just kind of saying, you're, you're, however old you are, you're not older than 50. Abraham, that's 2,000 years ago. What are you talking about? In verse 58, Jesus drops the hammer. Most assuredly, I say to you, and here's where, depending on your translation, amen, amen, is how he says it. Most assuredly, it's amen and amen. This is absolute truth. I, before Abraham was, I am. Notice, was is past tense. I am is present continuous. That's true in the grammar. In fact, the verb for was in Greek actually normally means became. So before Abraham was born, before Abraham began as a human being, you know, came into existence, before Abraham's earliest day, I am already there. How did John begin his book? In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. What's he saying? Jesus is the eternal God. And here he hammers it out, one, by just, by his grammar. He's saying, I am eternal. He didn't say, before Abraham was, I was, so that would make him old. Before Abraham was, I am. He's eternal. He always exists. And of course, he's referring to, when he uses that, the language of the Bible. When, remember when Moses, we've talked about this before, when Moses said, who shall I say to Israel, that, what's the name of the God who has sent me? In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you, me to you. Now the New Testament's written in Greek, that's written in Hebrew. When the, when the Jews translated the Hebrew text into Greek 250 years before Christ, they used the Greek expression, a go, a me. I am. When Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, he uses the same Greek expression, I am a go, a me. What's he saying? I am the eternal God. I am the I am. I am Jehovah God. I am Yahweh God. I am the God of the scriptures. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God is Yahweh. And so the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. The Father is Yahweh. The Son is Yahweh. He's saying, I am the Yahweh of the scriptures. Now, did the rabbis understand that? You can see it. Verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at Jesus, throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. Why did they pick up stones? 
That was commanded in Scripture. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord your God shall be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. What they're saying is, you have just blasphemed by making yourself God. But it's not blasphemy if it's true. That's just like it's not boasting if it's the truth. And so they're denying. They're mad because he's just telling them the truth. I am the God. He hid himself literally in the in the Greek as a passive. He was hidden. God hid him. Why? It wasn't his time to die. And so God protected him. All of a sudden, they couldn't get their hands on him. They, they picked up their stones. Where did they find the stones? Well, remember, the temple's constantly under construction. So they picked up some of the stones around, were ready to hurl, and by the time they, he's gone, God supernaturally protected him from sight. And he was... Because it's not his time. The time will come where he will be right there. Well, as we finish this chapter, just looking back, what are we seeing? What is clear is Jesus is the God of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. He is Jehovah or Yahweh, however he wants to pronounce that. He is the God of the Bible. Like I said, the Jehovah's Witnesses will come to you and try and argue against it. They're arguing against Scripture. And they, have to, they actually change the New Testament translation. They have their own translation because they have to get rid of those passages that point to the fact he's God. Now, Mormons will come and say Jesus is God. He became God. He, he came as a man, but he lived, a perfect, you know, he lived so well that he was exalted into Godhood. And you can become a God too. We won't get into all that, but simply stating Jesus says he's the eternal God. God is eternal. God doesn't have a beginning. God doesn't become God. It's not a promotion for good behavior. But that's what our Mormon friends say. He, Jesus is the God of the Bible. He is the eternal God. It is through his word that we know him. And in only in knowing him we have eternal life. There is no other gospel. There is no other savior there are not many paths to salvation. There is only one, the one true God, Jesus Christ. In knowing him, we have eternal life and will not experience eternal death. Because of that, the believer has no cause to be a fear, afraid of death. Death has been conquered. Physical death is simply the door into heaven. I know sometimes the death process is not to be looked forward to. I mean, like in, in Pilgrim's Progress, um, one has a real struggle crossing the river, one doesn't. But death itself is the door to heaven. And I, when, when, the way I've often thought of it, when, when death comes, the body becomes weaker and weaker often. And then suddenly when someone is almost like going to sleep, suddenly they are more awake, more alert, more vibrant than they have ever been. That's death. That's not something to fear for a believer. But for someone still in their sins or someone who has yet to trust in Jesus Christ, death is a transition to judgment. And so Jesus is the true God. And he calls in us to trust in him 
believe in him. For many of us, we know Jesus Christ as Savior. Reassurance. He holds my future. I can trust him. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to what Jesus is saying. He is the, he is the key to the door. He is the door. And there's only one door. And it's only through trusting in him that we have salvation. And as we look out around us, so, so many who do not know Christ, we can curse the darkness or we can light a candle and share the gospel in a darkening world. Well, again, I'm going to kind of read a close. Speaking of the deity of Christ, I want to read one of the great theologians of a previous generation, Ronald Reagan. This comes from Time Magazine, not my usual theology source. But they were writing an article on a book entitled The Reagan Letters. While George uh, W. Bush is widely seen as one of the most genuinely devout modern presidents, Reagan was sometimes charged with being a phony, one who talked up religious values but was actually a divorced, non-church-going Hollywood type who was remote from his own kids. He tells one pen pal that he would go to church much more if, if he could, but the Secret Service argued that because of terrorism threats, he presented too big a risk to other parishioners. Imagine if he were to, well, if he were to come today, it'd be really unusual. But if such a one were to come into our presence, I mean, there would be no seats left for us because of all the Secret Service. And he said, it's just too disruptive. To, it's not fair to a church to disrupt it like that. Yet elsewhere, Reagan sounds better equipped to lead a congregation than join one. This is Time Magazine. In a 1978 letter, he argues with a California pastor about the divinity of Jesus. Quote, this is Reagan now, either he was what he said he was, or he was the world's greatest liar. It is impossible for me to believe a liar or charlatan could have had the effect on mankind that he has had for 2,000 years. We could ask, would even the greatest of, our, of liars carry his lie through the crucifixion? when a simple confession would have saved him? Then skipping down, did he allow us the choice, you say, that you and others have made to believe in his teaching but reject his statements about his own identity? He's quoting practically C.S. Lewis, and I was just reading a quote last night from Mr. Spurgeon. It argues pretty much the same thing. But isn't that interesting? So he is, he's making it clear how can you possibly deny the deity of Christ? Just look at his life. Look at what he did. And so, I'm not convinced about the Bible because of Ronald Reagan's remarks. But that's an example to us of how clear and, 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 and strong is, is the testimony of Scripture. We can stand firmly in it. Notice he's writing to a pastor. Of course, it says he's from California, so... But, but he's writing to a pastor and saying, you and your friends, are, how, can you de how can you deny this? Tragically, many reverends do. But if you have to choose between a reverend, or in Jesus' day, a rabbi, and the scriptures, go with the scriptures. And embrace Jesus, who is the eternal I am. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that, that you would send him into this world. And oh, Father, that this world would so reject and despise and dishonor him and you.
Father, may we live in a way that displays our gratitude and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name.